Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are semantic threat researchers Alan Neville and Bridget O'Gorman. In this week's podcast, we've been discussing three new pieces of semantic research which we published since our last episode. Uh, one is recent activity around the Nobers ransomware family. But before we get into that, let's turn to two pieces of research we published about two distinct espionage campaigns targeting organizations in Asia. And here to talk about that is Alan. Um, and let's turn to the first one, which is a blog we wrote about a group of attackers that were formerly associated with the Shadowpad Trojan. Um, but maybe let's talk about the group themselves first, because they're kind of a shadowy outfit or difficult to put pin down. Um, because as I mentioned, their calling card was the Shadowpad Trojan, but they've since moved on to other malware, right? And um, it seems that they're pretty interested in targeting um, uh, governments across Asia, Alan. Yeah, so um, I suppose Shadowpad itself is interesting in that it was originally sold as a, as a successor to, to the core plug uh, Trojan, um, originally on some underground forms. And then since then, we've only observed a handful of actors using this malware, all likely operating out of Asia. Um, previous attacks that we've seen involving Shadowpad based on targeting um, and motives suggest these actors are likely nation state backed. Um, also, which I suppose performing intelligence gathering operations against these victims. Um, and I guess as, as you've mentioned as well, it's it's been a little difficult to pin down the activities of each of these groups due to the overlapping use of the tools and different techniques that they employ. Um, even more recently, we've, we've observed these groups moving away from Shadowpad and as of late, um, instead, they've began leveraging more off-the-shelf tools and in an attempt to remain uh, effectively under the radar. Um, in the blog that we posted this month, we detail some of the activity we've observed with one such group where they've been targeting um, mostly government entities and institutions in Asia, um, including offices of prime ministers, state-owned telecoms, IT organizations, organizations excuse me and even state-owned media companies all right thanks Alan. um now for me one of the big standout um findings um in this bit of research is is the frequency with which this group uses uh dll side loading um and maybe could you give the listeners first of all an explanation of what dll side loading is yeah sure uh, so D dll side loading or dll hijacking is another name for it um, it's nothing new, and in fact, it has been um, used as a means by actors to load malicious code for years and years now at this stage. Um, basically, the technique involves placement of malicious DLL files, usually some loader code in the same directory as a legitimate application. Uh, the DLL is generally renamed to a, a DLL file or a file name that's used by a legitimate application. So when this legitimate application is executed or loaded, it in turn loads a malicious DLL file um, and effectively executes some arbitrary code chosen by the attackers. Um, as it turns out, there's many, like many applications susceptible to this type of attack, uh, particularly older versions of applications uh, which have been leveraged um, in attacks today to execute malicious payloads. Uh, now, the blog says the attackers use a wide range of um, legitimate software to perform um, side loading. Um, I'm right in saying, Amitai, that the software wasn't already on the network. It, it was actually installed by the attackers themselves. Yeah, you're correct indeed. Um, 
when we started digging into the telemetry and the activity of the attackers and these attacks, we started to notice a plethora of clean applications being executed, followed by what appeared to be some suspicious or malicious activity. Now, when digging a little bit deeper, we quickly realized these attackers had been installing legitimate software in order to execute their malicious payloads using this this uh, DLL side loading trick. Um, and this was software that wasn't um, in wide use in the victim's environment either, which obviously raises a bit of a red flag. So what was particularly interesting about this, though, is that generally you'd only expect to see one legitimate application being used across an entire attack. But in this case, we observed multiple applications, things like VPN clients to well-known web browsers to AV software, among other ones. Um, and then also, in this case, the attackers even chained some of these legitimate applications together. So, for example, we saw them install one AV software, which was used to load a malicious DLL, which in turn then called some VPN software, which again in turn loaded um, some additional malicious code, which would then call another legitimate application. And this was a big chain that would eventually load um, their malicious payloads. And in some cases, we saw the attackers chaining up to several um, applications or going several, several layers deep in order to execute their malware, presumably, presumably as some attempt to avoid detection. Yeah. Another thing that stood out was that the software they used um, for sideloading was usually really old. Uh, why is that? Yeah, so as I mentioned, this attack has been around for years and there's been hundreds, if not thousands of applications that are known to be susceptible to this type of attack. However, around like 2010, this was like uh, around the time when this attack method became sort of the attack du jour. Um, it was picked up by a lot of different groups and um, it attracted a lot of attention from uh, software developers and AV companies. Um, and so where possible mitigations were introduced in later versions of these vulnerable um, applications. However, we're still seeing some attackers leveraging these older applications, basically, because they're still susceptible. Um, and they don't contain these mitigations in order to execute this malicious code, and which is exactly why, in this case and many others, we see the attackers deploying older versions of this legitimate software, and sometimes applications that are years out of date um, in order to conduct these attacks. Okay, that makes sense, all right. Um, is there anything organizations can do to protect themselves from sideloading, given that there's uh, legitimate software involved? Yeah, of course. So there, there's a few things that organizations can do to protect themselves against sideloading attacks. Um, one, obviously keeping your AV software up to date is the first thing I would recommend. Uh, we know that some DLL sideloading attempts can go undetected, but having an up-to-date AV software package installed is um, basically an essential line of defense that can block some of these attacks. Um, second thing is monitoring application usage within your environment. Uh, periodically scan for older applications that shouldn't be there um, and make sure that they're actually removed. And again, like these attacks are only really possible through the introduction of these older applications, either by the attackers or unintentionally, sometimes by employees as well. So deploying things like, I suppose, just tools like DLL Spy that can help be used to detect and correct DLL side loading attempts as well um, would be some of the recommendations. And I guess finally, um, ensure your organization establishes and maintains a solid cybersecurity policy. Restrict remote DLLs from loading and enabling things like DLL safe um, search mode uh, would be 
some additional recommendations. And obviously, execution prevention is also useful here. So leveraging things like application control solutions can really help mitigate uh, these types of attacks and, and the risks that are associated with them. Okay, thanks. Um, as we mentioned earlier, uh, this group of attackers, they, they've moved on from Shadowpad to a number of new payloads or are new for them. And there's a pretty extensive list of payloads that have been used in this recent campaign. Um, what's the reason for such a big tool set? Uh, does each of them have a particular use or is there some kind of redundancy there? Yeah, so during our investigation, we observed the attackers deploying, as you said, like a range of off-the-shelf tools which they customized for their own purposes. Uh, we observed remote access Trojans or rats, such as a uh, plug X um, or core plug, uh, Troculus uh, rat was also another tool that they use and Quasar rat as well. Um, in addition to this, we also observed the attackers leveraging publicly available tools to assist in their lateral movements, such as a uh, LADON penetration testing framework, um, and they essentially use this tool to search for and exploit services within uh, targeted um, organizations to gain access to systems of interest on their networks, um, a host of password collection tools like Minicats and PassView. There was um, other various network scanning tools, I guess we've seen like Fscan, MBTScan, a host of keyloggers. And, and, and in fact, we also found the, attacker, the attackers had created custom keylogger tools as well, uh, which had extensive capabilities that not only perform key logging, but also had the ability to take screenshots, querying SQL databases, performing code injections, uh, downloading files from attacker controlled infrastructure, um, and even stealing uh, data that's um, saved to your clipboards. So when you're copying and pasting data uh, between applications. So we believe the attackers deploy these off the shelf um, and publicly available tools essentially to muddy the water when it comes to attribution. Um, it makes it harder to associate the activity to any one particular group, particularly when there's multiple groups are all using the same tool sets. Um, it's also, I guess, possible that the attackers just didn't care about being cost. Generally, generally speaking, deployment um, of large uh, tool sets, it, it raises or gives more opportunity for detection and discovery. But it seems that this really isn't an issue for these guys. They deploy multiple legitimate applications alongside malicious off-the-shelf rats, various hack tools, various system administration tools. Um, it's likely that they believed once they had initial access, retaining that access wouldn't be difficult uh, for longer uh, running operations for them. Okay, and I know we're not currently attributing this um, activity to any named actor, but there are some links to, to particular threat groups, aren't there? Yeah, we've we've discovered um, multiple links to various groups and some earlier activity as well, um, particularly ones, particularly some activity that we've seen operating out of Asia. Uh, this included attacks involving Core Plug, as we mentioned before. It's one of the tools that they have used in a lot of their attacks. Um, also, we had some links to groups such as Greyfly uh, and Blackfly and Mustang Panda, um, and even to APT41. I suppose we're, we're seeing multiple overlaps across uh, multiple groups uh, with this activity, including the re reuse of, of these legitimate applications for sideloading, uh, sometimes even the same versions of this software. Uh, the file names that they're being deployed as is also the same. 
Um, and for this reason, I guess we're, we're purposely not attributing this activity to a single group, at least not yet anyways, but we'll continue to monitor their progress, obviously, um, and then try to see if can we can um, uncover any additional clues or indications as to who, ex who exactly is behind these attacks. Okay, thanks. Now, let's move on to the second piece of research uh, we published last week. Uh, it's about a group called Webworm. Um, I guess, first of all, can you tell us some more about this group and who they've been targeting? Yeah, so Webworm, um, or they're also known as Space Pirates. Uh, they're believed to be a group that have been involved in uh, espionage activities, mainly in Asia. Uh, the group are known to use different versions of uh, well-known open source remote access tools uh, for their operations, including Troculus, which again, we've mentioned before, is a popular remote access tool. Um, they've also used Ghost RAS and 9002 RAS as well. So traditionally, the group are known to target Russian organizations. However, more recently, we've discovered and observed that the group have been targeting organizations in Asia. Um, I guess they're also known to have targeted organizations in other uh, countries as well. So places like Georgia and Mongolia. Um, and some of the some of these victims have operated in sectors such as information technology, government, aerospace, and even energy. So like critical infrastructure. Okay. And one of the interesting things about this blog is that we said we found evidence uh, of the attackers preparing malware for future attacks. Um, so what kind of work did we see uh, them doing with the malware? Um, I guess while while we've been tracking their use for various uh, or their use of various remote access trojans, uh, we observed modifications or enhancements to their tooling, whereby they have extended some of the capabilities um, and functionality of their backdoors. So, for example, they've modified Troculus to load configuration files from external files, um, and they check for like specific locations on a disk, uh, the contents of of those files, for example. Um, are expected to be compressed using non-standard compression algorithms. Um, in addition, the group have deployed custom packers to help obfuscate their malware. And obviously things like these are used to hinder analysis, evade detection um, and such. And I guess this, this same packer um, was also ver observed being used in other remote access Trojans that the group are believed to be using as well. Um, they've also extended the functionality of these other backdoors or these other tools, such as adding uh, various additional layers of obfuscation to bypass security protection um, and loading code directly in memory to make it a, a bit harder to detect. Um, it's clear that they've been working on improving their backdoors, likely as a, as a means to remain under the radar, but um, at the same time, they're happy to reuse tools that are readily available, likely to save on development time. All right, that's, that's really interesting. Thanks, Alan. Um, let's turn to you, Bridget, uh, because um, we have a new blog that was just published today, actually, uh, that looks at some of the newer tactics, uh, tools and procedures used by the threat actors um, deploying the Nobris ransomware family. Yeah, thanks, Dick. Yeah, so Nobris um, is a name that we use for the ransomware family that is also commonly known um, by other vendors as Black Cat or ALF. And it is, I think, one of the more interesting and probably one of the most active arrivals um, on the ransomware scene in the last year or so. Um, it first appeared back in November 2021, so just a bit less than a year ago, and sparked initial interest because it was coded in Rust 
And this was the first time that we'd seen a professional ransomware strain that had been used in actual real world attacks that was coded in this programming language. And we actually wrote a blog about that at the time. Um, and we probably spoke about it on the podcast as well then too, I'm sure. And Rust is interesting as it is not only a very secure language, but it also is um, cross-platform, meaning that malware written in it can be deployed um, in theory on all operation systems, so Windows, Linux, etc. Um, so Noberis is a successor uh, to the Dark Side and Black Matter ransomware families, um, two very familiar names as well. And it's developed by the same group that developed the, that ransomware, um, which Semantic tracks as Coreed, and which is also uh, widely known as Carbon Spider or Fin7. And that group has been around kind of since in its original incarnation since 2012. And initially um, it was known as Fin7, then it became well known for using its Carbonac malware to steal money from organizations worldwide, targeting primarily the banking, hospitality, and retail sectors. And then in 2018, three members of the group were arrested. And in 2020, it appeared the group decided to change its tactics and it launched its ransomware as a service operation, um, which it has continuously kind of developed since then. So Noberis operates as a ransomware as a service, as most ransomware does these days, meaning it is deployed by affiliates basically for a cut of the profits. Uh, profits. And this means then that the uh, TTPs that are used in attacks featuring this ransomware, they can vary um, because of the different affiliates deploying it. All right. Um, and can you give us some details on some of the more interesting tools uh, we've seen being used um, by attackers using this ransomware recently? Because there's been a few, hasn't there? Yeah, there's been a few kind of um, attacks of note, I suppose. So in August, we found uh, that Noberis was being used alongside a heavily updated version of the Xmatter data exfiltration tool. So Xmatter was actually discovered by Symantec um, in November 2021. And at that time, it was being used alongside the Black Matter ransomware. Um, so Xmatter is designed to steal specific file types from a number of selected directories and upload them to an attacker control server prior to the deployment of the ransomware itself on a victim's network. Um, even at the time uh, when we discovered it initially, we did find various variants of the tool as its developers were continually refining it, it appeared, to optimize its operation and to expedite exfiltration of, I suppose, a sufficient volume of high-value data um, as quickly as possible. So this new version of Xmatter, in fact, has again reduced the number of file types it attempts to exfiltrate and no doubt to kind of, I suppose, optimize what they can do in a certain amount of time. And it's also added some new features as well. It's added a third exfiltration capability, FTP, to its arsenal. And um, this is in addition to SFTP and WebDAV, which are present in older versions. It's added an ability to build a report that lists all process files. Um, it's also added some capabilities that allow it to corrupt process files. And also, um, it can be configured to have a self-destruct option, which um, when it's enabled, basically will make the tool self-destruct and quit if it suspects it's been um, executed in a non-corporate, non-Windows environment, essentially. Um, the malware itself then as well was extensively rewritten with some of its ex existing features being implemented differently. And it's likely this was done to avoid detection because obviously Xmatter um, is a known tool. So it's like they were taking these various steps to avoid it being detected. And definitely the kind of continuous development of this tool, it does underline, I suppose, the importance of the data theft, and, you know, data theft, exfiltration, extortion element of ransomware attacks now as well. Yeah, it does. Uh, and stealing data seems to be very, uh, like a real key element uh, of some you know, virus attacks at the moment, doesn't it? 
Yeah, we saw it um, in another instance in August too. We saw at least one affiliate that was using Nobaris, um, using information stealing malware that is designed to steal credentials, um, specifically that are stored by the Veeam backup software. So Veeam is capable of storing credentials for a wide range of systems, um, including you know, uh, domain controllers and cloud services. And the credentials are stored like to facilitate the backup of these systems. So obviously if they're compromised, it's quite serious. Um, and the malware used in this instance was called infostealer.amfo, and it was designed to connect to the SQL database for Veeam stores credentials and then steal them um, using an SQL query. Um, so Amfo will then decrypt and display these credentials to the attackers, basically. Um, this tool, it's been in existence since we think August last year, August 2021, and there is evidence that it has previously been used by attackers deploying the Yan Luang and the Lockbit ransomware families. And a recent report from BlackBerry also detailed how Amfo was used alongside a new ransomware strain it had dubbed Monty, um, which appears to be based on the leaked source code of the Conti ransomware that was leaked um, earlier this year. Um, and stealing credentials from Veeam, it is a known attack technique and it can allow for privilege escalation and lateral movement and obviously gives attackers access to, you know, more data to exfiltrate and more machines um, to encrypt as well. And another interesting thing that we saw in this attack um, that, that involved AMFO, um, we also saw Gmer um, utilized. So this is a relatively old rootkit scanner that can be leveraged by threat actors to kill processes, basically. And its usage by ransomware actors um, does appear to have become more frequent in recent months. It was also seen in that Monty attack detailed by um, BlackBerry, uh, which is quite interesting as it is a, you know, it's an old tool that's been around for a long time. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely a blast in the past, all right. Um, <laughs> and we were able to get some insights into um, how Corrid actually operates um, its ransomware as a service operator too, weren't we? Yeah, yeah, we were. Um, so I suppose like many of the ransomware developers uh, operating at the moment, Corey forbids its ransomware from being used against certain targets. So in this case, that includes organizations um, in the Commonwealth of Independent States or neighboring countries, which is basically um, Russia and other ex-Soviet nations. Um, also organizations in or relation to the healthcare sector and charitable and non-profit organizations too. Um, but they also are advised to avoid attacking um, education and government sectors. And this is probably to avoid, you know, an undue amount of attention being attracted basically by these ransomware attacks. Um, and one interesting thing, one interesting thing about Nobarius as well is that it offers four encryption modes um, for its ransomware. And this includes full encryption and also then what they call smart pattern encryption. Now, full encryption is obviously the most secure type of encryption, but it is also the slowest, uh, slowest, which obviously allows time potentially for malicious activity to be discovered. So maybe kind of higher risk um, for attackers. In Nobaris is offering smart pattern encryption, offers encryption of a certain number of megabytes in percentage increments, basically. So by default, it encrypts with a strip of 10 megabytes every 10% of the file, starting from the header, which it says will be an optimal mode for attackers in terms of speed and cryptographic strength. Now, Sentinel Labs actually also recently published a report where it referred to this smart pattern encryption encryption as intermittent encryption. I mentioned how it mentioned how it had been adopted by certain ransomware op operators, including Nobaris, um, also Black Bosta, and some newer actors like the Quick Ransomware and Play Ransomware. And it's interesting because it appears that ransomware developers they may be using the offering of this form of encryption as a kind of a selling point, as a way to entice affiliates to use their ransomware because it is a more efficient but still secure way to 
um, encrypt files for attackers. Um, so that's kind of an interesting element as well. And the recent update um, to uh, um, a recent update to the No Bears ransomware appears to have made in June this year when they added an ARM build for encryption of non-standard architectures, as well as a safe mode functionality. And then in July, they also added an update uh, that allowed for the indexing of stolen data, meaning basically it's data leaks websites can be searched by keyword or file type or other terms, and um, which is a functionality we've seen a few different ransomware families um, add in recently. And I suppose this act of updating of the ransomware, you know, indicates very much an active threat still, and it's probably likely to be yeah, around for a while yet, I would say. Okay, that's some uh, pretty interesting insights there. Um, okay, thanks, Bridget. Um, I think that's all we have time for this week. Uh, but if you've been enjoying our podcast, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out on all of our future episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel. And if you'd like to read our latest research, including all three pieces of research we discussed on today's podcast, you can check out our blog, which can be found at semantic-enterprise-blogs.security.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. We'll be back again in two weeks' time, but until then, thank you and goodbye.